Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you all very much for tuning in. Hope you're all feeling fantastically well, cheerful and optimistic in this brilliant weather, uh, the economy booming, the lockdown ending. Oh, you know, anyway, we can fantasise. Uh, but in that context, if you don't mind me saying before we get down to business, something to look forward to this Wednesday Rock and Roll Politics is streaming live at King's Place and you can get tickets via the King's Place website. I know some of you have already done so. And actually, I've already made up my mind on my theme of the evening. The evening, there are many twists and turns. It evolves in many different ways, depending on the audience involvement. But my theme, I plan to do it on Keir Starmer. Can he win? And if so, how does he win? the next general election. What are the lessons of his leadership so far and what does he need to do and change to win? The context is quite an interesting one. Last month on the live streaming show, as some of you will know, uh, the audience makes a prediction each month and one of the predictions last month was, would Keir Starmer be Prime Minister after the next general election? And by a tiny majority. The audience predicted, it's a prediction, not what they hope will happen, but a prediction. They predicted he would not be, which if you think about it, has huge implications, if right. It basically means there will be a fifth successive Conservative government. So can that change? If so, how? What does he need to do? How, what does he need to learn from other leaders? It will be partly about leadership, which is a theme that we've all reflected on in these podcasts. So that's what I plan to do. Obviously, if big events erupt, you know, not that we're not the whole time surrounded by mountainous events, but they are familiar to us all, and we've discussed them many times. Um, that will be my theme, but there will be uh, our usual unreliable predictions, of which the one last month was an example, perhaps, or maybe wholly. We will know in a few years' time whether that one was right. And there will be questions and points raised, and some of you will disagree with what I say about Starmer, and we can explore that and many other things live. So get a glass of wine. First of all, book during this bleak weather period. Just book and put it in the diary. And then we will have an evening over a glass of wine or two or whiskey, cup of coffee, whatever your preference. You can't run or row or anything else because it's visual. You've got to just sit there and relax with a glass or two. And as ever, with the podcast on uh, a week where I'm doing the live show, I'm kind of saving myself and thoughts for the live show, which gives more time for questions. So if it's okay with all of you, that's what we're going to do. My thoughts on Wednesday, live, questions today. Gives time for me to cram in a few more questions. And we're going to begin where we left off or where I left off last week. Last week, for those of you joining the podcast for the first time, I was reflecting on how interesting it is that the government has announced in England reforms to the NHS, which basically reform the reforms that were hailed as the great modernising solution to the NHS by David Cameron in his in the first term of this government. Anyway, 
and and basically I, I argue that the broad thrust of these reforms are inevitable and urgently necessary uh, once again making the government accountable for the provision of the service clear lines of accountability compared with the blurred chaos that arose from those famous Lansley reforms, obviously, in England. Anyway, uh, lots of emails uh, about all of this, and I'm just going to read a, a couple out, if that's okay, but they kind of reflect a lot of the others. This is from Paul Steinberg. Uh, Paul writes, uh, Loving the podcast, or oh, thank you very much, Paul. I only discovered it in January, but it's now the highlight of Monday lunchtime as I listen on my stroll along the Manchester Ship Canal. Well, that's that's a great image, a lovely walk to do on a Monday lunchtime. Uh, as you'll hear, we've got quite a few emails from people in beautiful places this week. Manchester Ship Canal is up there. Anyway, Paul says about the NHS reforms. I'm a public health specialist and distinctly remember the day Lansley's white paper was published in July 2010. I do as well, Paul, actually. Uh, those years of passing the bill were beyond chaotic, costly and distracting too. The coalition ignored the multiple expert views cautioning against their unworkable reforms. I agree, he's, this is Paul, that the atomization and fragmentation of the NHS, most apparent in the realm of public health split between local government and the health service, needs urgent remedy. However, this is uh, his conclusion, the one successful strand of the national pandemic response has to date been the rapid rollout of the vaccine by the NHS under Steinman Stevens, of course, which is via NHS England. So doesn't the return of the NHS to direct ministerial control just at the point it demonstrates the benefits of being liberated from their meddling risk damaging that independence and clear effectiveness? Now, that's really interesting. I'm going to go straight to another question on this from Kathy Mears. Uh, Kathy who's a regular correspondent to the podcast and the live stream. Uh, she puts in her concerns about these reforms and she poses the question if you think that these proposals in any way take us back to a pre-Lansley NHS or whether there's a risk of politicizing the NHS to serve the interests of the Tory government and its privatizing tendency so a similar question about is it shifting the responsibility away from bodies like NHS England and Simon Stevens back to say Matt Hancock and Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak because let us not forget the Treasury plays a key role in deciding how much the NHS is going to get so that is Sunak. And my answer to both Paul and Kathy is that I completely agree that Simon Stevens and instantly much more of an expert and a specialist on NHS provision than a fleeting health secretary, whether it's Man ha Matt Hancock or Jeremy Hunt or the many health secretaries under the Labour government, uh, and, and has done a good job and has got a forward-looking plan which is being unrolled at the moment. However, it, the dance between NHS England, the health secretary... Public Health England, the Treasury, the Prime Minister. As I said last week, you know, David Cameron said, why can't we do X and Y to the then Health Secretary, Jeremy Hunt? Jeremy Hunt said, we've given away those powers to NHS England, but then they try and take it back. If you notice when the number 10 press conferences are held, you never see Simon Stevens on with Matt Hancock. 
because there are these lines of blurred responsibility which would come across in a press conference. And I think there does need to be clarification. And in the end, the reality is the government raises the money for the NHS via taxes. It must therefore be partly responsible, at least, for the way that money is spent and accountable for it and accountable for the quality of health. The same applies in, uh, for Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales as well. And so I kind of broadly support these reforms, at least in theory, because you can't in the end pretend that the elected government is not responsible. So why not put in a structure which recognises that? Whether that means increasing the role of the private sector, as Cathy fears, I doubt. At the moment, they're explicitly saying the opposite. But there's a very good piece by a listener to this podcast, Professor Bob Hudson, on the LSE Politics website, where he highlights the missing gaps so far in what we know about the government's plans. And as you can imagine with this government, they are gaping. So while I kind of support the broad principle, perhaps more so than Cathy and Paul who worry about, for example, the role of NHS England in this new context, just as when, you know, the NHS under this current structure uh, has proven its value uh, with the vaccine rollout. But by the way, I think the national network, which is so valuable with the NHS as a principle, should be reinforced rather than undermined by these reforms. But, you know, I I can see why you're worried. And other uh, listeners sent in similar kind of concerns. So if we can leave it with Paul and Cathy to reflect that. And thank you very much for the questions. Moving on to another really interesting one from Jonathan Rice, who incidentally says uh, he listens to the podcast while ironing very productive use of the time. He puts it absolutely starkly, Jonathan Rice, brackets, ironing. First, I thought it was a double-barreled name, Jonathan Rice ironing, and then I thought, no, no, no. Anyway, he in, he raises a, a fascinating theme, which, you know, so many of these questions you could spend an entire podcast on, which is why I don't get through all the questions I promise to. But this is one where I really will spend a whole podcast on. He says, it seems to me that the Labour Party discards experienced ministers and shadow ministers at an alarmingly early age. In the past, heavyweights such as Dennis Healy and Roy Hattersley were on the front bench for three decades. But where are such figures now? Big hitters like Ed Balls, David Miliband, Yvette Cooper, Andy Burnham have all been allowed to move on, despite being only in their early 50s. Could this explain why the current shadow front bench seems so lightweight? It's that the four examples you give, Jonathan, uh, are in some ways not typical. Ed Balls famously lost his seat, although in a previous era, he would have got a seat again very early on, someone as uh, brilliant as he was. Instead, he's become famous as a celebrity dancer, which says a lot about politics that you know, he was loathed as a minister and seen as a bully and all this kind of thing. That's when he was you know, trying to do things like raise money for the NHS. He, he dances on peak time BBC One. He's a hero. David Miliband, of course, left politics because his brother became leader. Yvette Cooper is still an MP and I think would have loved to have been shadow uh, chancellor. And Andy Burnham left to become mayor of Manchester. But there are many others who have left early in politics 
and I would even include those in the House of Lords like you know David Blunkett and other big figures who would in a certain age and imagine in the United States that have only just been starting out at their ages it's really changed so for example after 1979 when Labour lost and again in 1983 when Labour were slaughtered as Jonathan suggests the likes of Dennis Healy, Roy Hattersley, many others, Neil Kinnock and all the others, Michael Foote after 79, they didn't go off and pursue a career in the private sector or in the world of the arts, which certainly, for example, Foote and Hattersley could have, they were both brilliant writers and broadcasters, could have made a fortune and had a great time. They stayed for that thankless task of fighting a civil war in the Labour Party. That culture has changed. And you can measure it very clearly, really. It, it, it was the Tony Blair period. Tony Blair encouraged a whole range of people uh, to flourish. And when he left, they kind of followed him. You know, it's partly because they didn't like Gordon Brown and all that, but, but it, it was a cultural shift rather than I mean, what happens for example John Reed who had about 15 cabinet posts under Tony Blair used to move every 10 minutes then Gordon Brown came in and he announced he was leaving uh, you know all so many left Alan Milburn to spend more time with his family and and this just did not happen up until that period and as a result a great weightiness has been lost you could disagree with these people but they had experience of power and opposition and in the case of people like David Blunkett local government leading Sheffield Council and they've all gone and that does I think explain why the current shadow cabinet I mean Keir Starmer clearly decided he wanted to make a leap with the um, immediate past and the middle distant past with a new shadow cabinet but it does mean frankly even listeners to this podcast I bet don't wouldn't be able to name the whole shadow cabinet would you maybe some of you would be able to well yeah uh, I think some of you would perhaps I, I don't think I could to be honest and yet I could you know the shadow cabinet of 79 to 83 which led to a terrible terrible defeat I think I probably could have named because although Labour were fighting a war to its doom in 83 there were so many big charismatic figures on that front bench okay let's go now to one of the big themes of this podcast I think us lot are more informed about the whole situation in Scotland than any other community in the United Kingdom because we get some great thoughts from people from Scotland and indeed the rest of the country here's one from Scott MacDonald who expresses concern so this is what's going to happen if there is a referendum and the terms of victory or process are changed. He points out the speculation there might be a multi-stage ballot or a 60% threshold for yes to succeed rather than a simple majority, etc. He says these changes would, I think, be seen as desperate wheezes designed to game the result against independence, and they could be seen as a changing of the goalpost. And it just shows that if the government does try and change the terms, and there would be precedents for this when there was a referendum on a Scottish Parliament in the spring of 79 under a Labour government, it, it in effect led to their defeat. There was 
a threshold which wasn't passed. It led to the fall of the Callaghan government. But you're right, Scott, it, there would be a fury if there was a, an, a, it would be seen as an attempt to fix the referendum. And therefore, probably it would have to be the same as 2014. But the question I don't think Scott does necessarily have to be. I've mentioned this before, and I know the practical problems, but I think it has to be on something more specific than independence, yes or no, status quo, yes or no. It has to be on what form independence takes. But as you know, probably, Scott, if you're a regular listener, I'm not a fan of referendums, though some of you are converting me. And on this uh, same front, Hugh Carr writes an interesting point. By the way, he cooks scallops. Scallop, how do you, I don't eat fish. I, scallops, yeah, uh, in Edinburgh. What a great combination, cooking scallops in Edinburgh whilst listening to the podcast. Uh, Hugh, I don't know whether post-Brexit you're able to get hold of them. I think the entire sector is collapsing around us. Part of taking back control. You know, we can't buy things anymore, produce them. Uh, anyway, I hope you're enjoying the scallops as you listen or cook them. And he says he disagrees with the emailer who said Brexit is as damaging for the Tories as the poll tax here in Scotland. Uh, as yet, Brexit problems haven't really cut past this theme, that the SNP has handled the virus better than Johnson. And the almost universal sense that Johnson and friends, widely seen in Scotland as elite English public school, rich and out of touch, do not understand Scotland's issues. And Hugh Carr says, this is surging the indie, this is fueling the indie surge. And everything he does up here just does more to fuel that fire. So you can see the dilemma from Johnson's perspective, if Hugh, and I suspect he's right, is correct. There he is as Prime Minister, wanting to put the case for the Union, because who else in the end is ultimately responsible for putting that case? And every time he goes up there, he fuels that fire. So there we go. Uh, Jeff Strange writes, now Jeff, when he first got in touch with us here uh, at Rock and Roll Politics, us being all of us, I'm not using a kind of royal me in some completely deluded madness. He was a very keen runner. In fact, he used to run where I ran pathetically, slowly. He says, given up all activity in this lockdown, too much sourdough bread in lockdown. I kind of sympathise with him. I know most of you aren't in this place, but you kind of wake up, you know, another day, lockdown. What do I do? Do I go down and buy some sourdough bread and knock back some toast or go for a run? And I'm afraid there's only one winner in that for pathetic weeds like me with no self-discipline. Jeff's the same. Anyway, he says about Starmer, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, Jeff, because it's going to uh, be my reflective theme probably on the live stream. He says, I think Starmer's problem is a lack of strategy. Given his career to date within the legal world, strategy doesn't tend to play that large a part. It's mostly tactical. And I think this is where he's being badly advised in taking on Johnson, the Tories and so on, with tactical gimmicks. And he says his, uh, the, the moves to win back the Red Wallers will alienate metropolitan voters and younger voters. I, I, I take your point, Jeff. So I'm not going to comment now because uh, it's going to feature on Wednesday and that will be one of the, the themes. I know you've read, I've written a piece for the prospect magazine about starmer and the art of leadership which i think 
Jeff has seen and broadly agrees with. From Gillian Oliver. Hi, Steve. As you know, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I'm thrilled and never miss an edition, even more thrilled. I was prevented from running after doing my back-end gardening during the first lockdown. But following the ministrations of an excellent Gateshead chiropractor, I'm returning to fitness and listening to the podcast during Lisa's live Pilates online. Blimey, that really is conjures up an image. You can listen to this kind of stuff while doing Lisa's live Pilates. I'm going to give it a go, Lisa's live Pilates, and listen to someone else or something else because oh, I don't listen to myself. That would, I'll go bonkers. But that is that is inspiring. Gillian talks about UK and nationalism. Do we overlook perhaps the example of the empire to commonwealth model or, she says, wait, hear me out, the decision to give Hong Kong its independence? Are there any lessons, lessons hidden in the fact that we, unlike many other countries, have a serious track record in giving away governance? And can this help us now in any way? Well, the twist is actually, Gillian, with Brexit, we've given away quite a lot of power and sovereignty. We ha uh, but unintentionally. We haven't even got sovereignty to trade within the United Kingdom freely now because of the situation in Northern Ireland and the paperwork that is involved in transferring goods from Britain to Northern Ireland because Northern Ireland has in effect become the barrier uh, into the European single market at Johnson's choice. He's now expressing bewilderment at this and saying the EU are behaving badly. He chose this. Theresa May had a different example. But I know what you mean. There have been moments in Britain's history of a maturity and an internationalism. It's really interesting. I've been writing a chapter about Rab Butler uh, in a book I'm doing. And he, uh, which is out later in the year, and he as a young minister basically navigated through the House of Commons the act that gave near self-government it was near not total to India massively opposed by Winston Churchill and others imagine being a young Rab Butler in your early 30s with Churchill on the back benches raging against you but it prevailed and there are other examples of that kind of internationalism um, so it's a good point I mean Hong Kong at the moment is is a mess and you know they Britain in a way had to concede this power uh, but where you measure where power lies in that issue China you know I'm afraid it's it's sad you see the terrible protests in Hong Kong the, the sad that the desperate protests but China wields the power a different perspective and a very internationalist one from Tony Brown who listens from Australia and he's, he makes a different internationalist point about the UK from his perspective now, guess where he listens to this podcast? Are any of you of a sort of envious, jealous inclination? Kind of block your ears. Because he writes, I generally listen to you around 6am whilst walking the dog on the shores of Moreton Bay in Brisbane and often see dolphins and sea turtles popping up in the water. Great, thank you. We, uh, if you're wondering what we're doing now, sort of thing, Tony, it's icy, cold, bit of rain, overcast, you know, but we're, we're all great. Uh, don't worry. 
Anyway, Tony writes, I've been in Australia for 25 years and have watched the Brexit debacle unfold with absolute horror. I may be wrong, but having now spent half my life away from home, I can probably see Britain a lot more clearly than many of my compatriots caught up in the Daily Maelstrom. Yeah, that's good to get this outsider's perspective. And he says, from that perspective, far too many people in Britain just don't seem to have really got over the days of empire. Slightly different point from Gillian. With the events of 39 to 45 only adding further fuel to the fire. Brexit will surely only hasten that historical decline in the importance of Britain. Yeah, I, it, you're absolutely right, Tony, that that war and the mythology of Winston Churchill hovers over each prime minister. It certainly shaped part of the Brexit debate in a very distorted way, you know, kind of this idea of Britain alone. Well, of course it wasn't. Uh, it, you know, Britain had to, it was when the United States intervened and it certainly wasn't Britain alone. And But it has framed a part of the national consciousness. I'm sure Churchill, we know Churchill was on Thatcher's mind during the Falklands War because she started referring to him as Winston as if she had known him personally. I'm sure Winston Churchill was one of the factors in Blair's mind as he moved towards Iraq, by no means the only one, but one. And Johnson is obsessed by him. Uh, it's quite interesting. If you look on YouTube, as you know, uh, Johnson wrote a biography of uh, Churchill. And I was looking the other day at some of the talks he gave about Churchill at the time. And it's such a kind of idealised view of him. And yeah, it, it does hover and it did frame part of the Brexit debate. Not all of it, but part of it. So, um, yeah, thank you. Uh, do keep us in touch with your perspective from, yeah, walking along the shores of Moreton Bay in Brisbane and seeing the dolphins and the sea turtles. That's a good way of framing a perspective about the United Kingdom. Venetia Kane writes, she's a regular writer, but she wants to hear from more women. She says, aren't they as interested in politics? Well, they sure are. And in the live shows, uh, the, the women who put up their hands and so on, for those of you who don't go, will know that that's the case. So if it's not now, we've heard just from Hillary and there are a few others, but uh, Venetia says, uh, if they're not interested in politics, shame on them. But of course they are. We know they are. So do write, which is a good cue, actually, Venetia, for me to give out the uh, email address for those of you uh, relatively uh, new to the podcast. I'm doing this at about 27 minutes in for those of you running or rowing uh, and you want to make a note of the address. And I'll also put it on the blurb for the podcast. It's steverick14 at icloud.com. steverick14 at icloud.com and thank you for Venetia for encouraging everybody to write in because yeah we want as broad a range as possible and Venetia I know you wrote in recently and I referred to your email about leveling up just being words I think you'll you usually tune into the live stream I'll be referring to that on on Wednesday uh, Venetia so I hope you were across I didn't fully address it when you wrote in, uh, but I will be, because I think the words themselves matter, even if the government doesn't, certainly Boris Johnson shows no indication of knowing what he means by that, and the implications in, in terms of 
state activity. He's surrounded by turbocharged Thatcherites who don't believe in that kind of thing. Anyway, Venetia, you, you, you will hear more on that. Uh, Al Neal writes, Hi Steve, your podcast and others, forget about the others, Al, have taken the place of Radio 4. I know what you mean, we've talked about this before, that I think Radio 4 hasn't fully adapted to this new world where there is space. I, you, you'll all know I'm obsessed by this. The BBC is not biased to the right or left, but it's biased against letting discussions breathe. And I think the world of podcasts uh, means that people are turning to that because it's just a more grown-up conversation that we're all happening. Anyway, oh, Al, Al's on about uh, returning to Scotland. If when independence is achieved for Scotland, do you see the SNP fragmenting? It must have many members of voters who are not natural social democrats in the Scandinavian mode, if you agree that's their general position. Well, the SNP's general position, I mean, uh, as you know, we've got a lot of, uh, Al lives in Reading, but we've got a lot of uh, people in Scotland who will know it much better. I think Nicola Sturgeon, some of you may disagree, is actually a natural social democrat. You're absolutely right. Not all their voters are. They, they are doing so well. They're going to attract a range. But looking at them i think by the way on the whole alex salmond is 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 a kind of social democrat he once told me his hero was a harold wilson in the way he managed politics and parties and things you can see why uh, but the way they govern uh, again some of you will know much more about it and might disagree is that they are very cautious if they are social democrats they haven't used, I mean, the, there are some tax-raising powers that they have been wary of using. They might wish to, but haven't risked it in order to build up this broad church of uh, support. If independence is achieved, I don't, it would be interesting, you know, what is the future of a party that has achieved its its goal? I suppose protecting the goal becomes, and making sense of the goal would then become the objective. But all we can say for now is that the leadership of Sturgeon and Salmond shows the importance of having formidable leaders. You can disagree with them, you can challenge the implementation of policy within Scotland, but to be in such a commanding position, notwithstanding the fact that Salmond and Sturgeon are now fighting a Shakespearean duel, is a tribute to their leadership. Okay, now, I told you this podcast is global. We've heard from Australia. Now we're going to hear from Germany. This is Lucas writing from Wiesbaden in Germany, close to Frankfurt, Maine. He says, oh, this is where he's listening to the podcast. I listen to a podcast with great joy while taking my walks along the River Rhine. And even admittedly, I don't understand every aspect of how today's UK politics and policies play out. And I'm not able to follow every line you draw, taking back, looking back at a party's history or whatever. I did grow up in the UK, and therefore I'm a, uh, not a stranger, I uh, think he would say, to most of the parliamentary history before the 2010s. Oh, uh, I, the River Rhine, almost as good as the Manchester Canal. You know, we would all be there if we were allowed out. Anyway... There's an interesting question here. This is this casts our eyes beyond the UK. Here it says, do you think we could see Labour leaders of different European countries rallying together in the near future, like they did around the millennium with Tony Blair, Peter Mandelson, Gerard Schroeder and Oscar Lafontaine? 
there was a classic um, meeting between uh, Blair and Schroeder when they published this joint Third Way manifesto. It must have been, I think, in Labour's first term. Uh, it, it caused Ger uh, Schroeder quite a lot of problems because it was so far removed from orthodox perspectives of social democracy. Anyway, the context of this question is that in the autumn, we will get a new chancellor here. And while Merkel is still as popular as she's always been, we're still coming off 16 years under a Tory equivalent government. Plus, Merkel's successor is generally received as a rather weak candidate. On the opposite, I figure Keir Starmer could potentially be very popular across younger voters here in Germany, as he resembles some traits people like in Robert Hobeck, who, was, who even was seen as next chancellor by some outlets in pre-pandemic times, and that the SPD could benefit if Starmer was to be introduced as an English friend. I get that a European commitment of the Labour leader would have implications with Brexit and his handling of it, but he was wondering about the impact of a European push between centre-left parties. Uh, Italy and France involved too. It's a really interesting question, and there's no doubt at all that in the build-up to the 97 election, Blair derives some strength from alliances with centre-left figures, most obviously Clinton uh, in the United States, then president. But to some extent, he, he wanted to form alliances with uh, Schroeder and others. And Starmer would be similarly inclined. Starmer's an internationalist, uh, and, and he's a European. The problem, as you suggest, Lucas, is Brexit and the politics of Brexit. At the moment, Starmer, I'll be talking about this on Wednesday night, uh, is scared to mention the word and therefore I think would be wary of doing too much which allies him with uh, European politics. That might change over time but that's where he is at the moment. But there's no doubt when there's the sense of say the centre-left doing well in other countries people start writing columns about maybe we're seeing a period of social democracy rising across the Western world. There was a lot of that in the late 1990s. And then lots of columns about the fall of social democracy across the Western world and the rise of the nationalist right and so on. So, you know, if you are right, there are possibilities of this happening. But tell me more about the SPD in Germany, Lucas, on another occasion, or tell us all because I keep on reading that they're still very weak and in great trouble. But keep us informed. When you're back from your walk on the River Rhine, give us a briefing on the SPD and whether they're going to do well. Uh, oh, one more from Edinburgh. Sorry, there's a lot from Edinburgh this week, but I'm, it's all questions. So I'm going to try and get in as many as possible. This is from uh, Charlie Ellis. I'm one of your large band of listeners in Edinburgh. I usually listen while wandering along the Water of Leith walkway on the North Edinburgh Path Network. I know it well. He says, I suppose I must pass some of your other listeners while on my walks. Well, to be honest, I think you will on the basis of um, the number writing in from Edinburgh. And But he's not asking about uh, Scotland. And it's another reason why I inc included it, apart from I wanted to mention the Water of Leith walkway. It's gorgeous. A lot of water featuring this week. It's a motif, a Wagnerian motif. People listening as they walk by rivers or walkways of some form or another. Yeah, a kind of, where could we go here? Yeah, River Thames, if you're in London, I suppose, listening. 
we did have one from somebody who said he walked late at night along the River Thames. A very romantic image. hope he writes in again because it really conjured up something. Anyway, this is a theme not to do with Scotland. We've done our Scottish segment for today. Uh, we've al always had a powerful conservative commentariat in this country. Over the decades, we've had the likes of Peregrine, Warsthorn, T.E. Utley, Paul Johnson, Woodrow Wyatt, and further back, such figures as Malcolm Muggeridge. Malcolm Muggeridge began on the left, but you're right, by the end he was on the right. The current crop of trenchant conservative commentators seem particularly prominent in our politics in terms of influencing the climate of opinion, clearly evident in the Brexit debates and now in those regarding lockdown. In your view, is the Conservative commentariat more influential now than in previous decades? It's a really interesting question because the figures you mentioned from the past were really big figures. It's a bit like we're talking about these sort of Labour cabinets, you know, Dennis Healy and all that lot, Michael Foot and Roy Hassley, and then they all stayed on in opposition. This is not romanticising that period of politics how could you when they went on to lose a load of elections anyway? But they were big figures. And, you know, Peregrine Walsthorne, who died recently, was a really elegant writer. And it was in the era when there were far fewer pundits and columnists. And so they had much bigger individual influence. Now, the Conservative commentariat now is just vast. Uh, that's the thing. They aren't necessarily as formidable as that crowd that you highlighted, Charlie. But there are so many of them. And, you know, the newspapers remain largely on the right, uh, the London-based newspapers, and therefore their column pages are from people on the right. And even if they sometimes have centre-left commentators, they tend to be those who loathe the current leadership of the Labour Party very conveniently. I remember when poor old M. Miliband was leader, you know, the Times, uh, their columnist Phil Collins and Jenny Russell, although she used to be a great friend of Ed Miliband's, went for him. And no one was really allowed to say anything in praise of him. So they remain a formidable force, but I don't think there are figures on that scale the ones you mentioned were all beautiful writers. Some are beautiful writers. Matthew Paris writes with great elegance and is still, by the way, emphatically on the right, though he's a pro-European. So, yeah, I think it's just their ubiquity and range which are so powerful and influential in English politics anyway, and arguably in British politics. So there we go. I think we better stop. Now, I'm very conscious that at the end of last week, I kind of gave examples of some other questions. I'm going to just summarise one of them because one of them wasn't a question. Andrew Anderson explained why the independence movement didn't thrive when Margaret Thatcher imposed the poll tax on Scotland a year early. And it is interesting. It was because the Civic Scotland united around the Scottish constitutional convention which the SNP boycotted and it was within that that the hopes of um, those disillusioned with the status quo uh, placed their hopes um, and it became the blueprint that Blair felt obliged to implement when Labour came to power in 19. 
1897. So that was where the focus was in late 80s Scotland, uh, which is interesting. Uh, Robin Murray argued uh, for electoral reform as a way of linking a progressive alliance, which would be a route to Starmer becoming uh, prime minister, including a limited electoral pact. The problem with that, Robin, is electoral pacts, parties are always wary of agreeing to them because it sort of conveys a wider weakness. If you can't field a candidate, uh, it, it kind of conveys something fragile. Even in the build-up to 97, where Blair worked so closely with Ashdown, there was this sort of informal thing where the Lib Dems didn't campaign that hard in some seats and vice versa. But a formal pact? Less so. And as for Torin's uh, page's question about Russia, Torin, if it's okay with you, uh, I will wait uh, for that because it's just not an area of great expertise for me. If it is with you, please email me your assessment and I'll uh, read it out. He, uh, Torin's on, currently on the Callahan chapter of my book on prime ministers. Uh, yeah, God, there's, a, there's triggering some thoughts. Callahan, I think, uh, hugely unfashionable figure now, but uh, as as prime minister, what quite a model about keeping a cabinet together in tempestuous times, and yeah, what else? Oh yeah, Simon Lockyer on Starmer's performances in PMQs aren't getting the wider acknowledgement due to the virus, and yeah, Simon gets Proust in. If Proust is accepted, vis a vis a recent podcast discussion on people's memory. Would Boris possibly go for an early election, riding the wave of relief and joy as the lockdown ends? He'll call an election when he thinks he can win one, Simon, and forget about the fixed-term Parliament Act, which they're going to amend. I still think it's not likely in the near future, but not impossible. I know Polly Toynbee wrote a column, I spoke to her about it, where she thinks that might well happen because they know the... Uh, tough economic measures to come and all the other things to come could make winning an election very, very difficult. So they might go beforehand. On James Munro's question about the better Prime Minister, I'm going to do a podcast at some point, James, looking at these three Tory Prime Ministers we've had since 2010, David Cameron, Boris Johnson and Theresa May, and grade them. I don't usually like doing this, um, but I think you can actually do a one, two, three in order of prime ministerial merit with these three. It will be a quiet week when I pull that one off, um, but it will happen. Anyway, thank you very much indeed for tuning in. As I say, this one is the pre-live show podcast, so we've crammed in a lot of questions. Sorry if you've asked them and they haven't come up, they will do at some point. I read them all and reply to as many as possible as well. And yeah, if you don't mind, I'm just going to remind you again, Wednesday evening, live at seven o'clock, rock and roll politics, streaming live, the latest lockdown special until we can get back into those theatres, all of us. Uh, so do tune in with that glass of wine or whiskey or whatever and buy your tickets when you've put that podcast headphones down and then it's all ready for you to watch and tune get 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 in by the way at about 10 to 5 to 7 uh so there's time to, to get through the thing where you have to put password in or whatever and then we can have a great evening together and make sense of things god knows what will be happening by then anyway thank 
Thank you very much. Do rate the podcast if you've got a moment. Apparently, that means more people get to hear about it for reasons, as I've said before, I don't know, but it does. And see you all again. King's Place website on Wednesday night and at this podcast forevermore. Thanks a lot. Have a good few days. Bye. Bye.